From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugas, and this is The Explainer. view of this, and I think the view of the Boston Globe was, we want to have a conversation about if we're really thinking about the fundamental rights of speech and um, what we think the Second Amendment is protecting, what, you know, what's the clearest articulation of that? Welcome to Season 8 of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Last month, Miami Law's Marianne Franks wrote an op-ed in the Boston Globe that the First and Second Amendments could do with an update. The piece garnered widespread attention on the left and right. Today on our show, the author of The Cult of the Constitution, Our Deadly Devotion to Guns and Free Speech, makes the case. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Okay, good morning, Marianne. Nice to have you back. Thanks so much for having me back. Happy New Year. Um... So make the case for amending the amendments for those of us who are still struggling to understand things like the Establishment Clause, like why, how, who? Well, that's actually one of the reasons why I think we should reimagine the amendments is because people don't really understand them. They're, they're written in a kind of archaic way. They're not particularly clear. Uh, but I, I did you know, hope that people understood that this isn't an actual proposal that I want to submit to try to get a constitutional convention going. It's really meant to be a thought experiment about why people struggle to understand the Constitution, why people are so attached to it, and whether the benefits of history and experience could make it so that if we had a different uh, First and Second Amendments in particular, whether we'd have a better society. Okay. And like, how, how, what's the actual TikTok on how an amendment could be changed? So if we were really going to do this, you know, we'd be talking about getting uh, two thirds approval from each of the houses um, in Congress. So there's, you know, or a constitutional convention called by two thirds of the states. In other words, it's not very likely that we're talking about real amendments um, actually happening to the Constitution. And, you know, the Boston Globe piece was actually a part of a larger series that the Boston Globe was running to try to reflect on the Constitution after more than 200 years and to try to think about what it would be like if we could reimagine it. So it really isn't so much about can we get this done? Could there really be a constitutional amendment? It's more what would it be like if things were different? Although it was sort of taken at, oh my God, this woman wants to change the Constitution. Um so you managed to uh, to hit on freedom of the press and guns militia amendments without mentioning either of those in your in your suggested rewrite. Uh, why is that? Well, I'm really glad that you've asked that because that was part of what I was trying to um, to spark in terms of this conversation. And again, my own view of this, and I think the view of the Boston Globe was we want to have a conversation about if we were really thinking about the fundamental rights of speech and um, what we think the Second Amendment is protecting, what you know, what's the clearest articulation of that? And one of the things I wondered about when I was thinking about rewriting the First Amendment was, what is the press clause actually doing? And lots of very good scholars in recent years have asked this question to see, you know, is the is the press clause of the current First Amendment doing some kind of work that the speech clause isn't? And I think the the answer is very inconclusive. 
And one of the reasons why it's difficult to imagine how to do that better is is because it's hard to imagine what that really, you know, what a press freedom specifically would look like, right? Right now, people think that things, sometimes, sometimes people think that things like reporters privilege and not having to reveal sources, they think that's constitutionally guaranteed, but it's actually not. It's, it's not really doing very much other than sort of gesturing at the notion of a free press. And currently in our environment, we really should be asking the question of, you know, what would that mean? And who's the press? In the age of social media, everybody can consider themselves to be a journalist. Does that mean that everybody has got privileges? Everybody should have privileges? Does it mean something about access to newspapers and making sure that um, the news is reported fairly? What does any of that mean? And so I didn't put it in the First Amendment because I didn't know really what the answers to those questions should be. And I, I would really like to provoke a discussion on what we think press freedom as separate from the general freedom of speech what it should look like and how we should phrase that. And when it comes to the the Second Amendment and the question about guns, which is one of the more controversial, I suppose, parts of the of the rewrite, you know, if we look at the archaic original view of what the Second Amendment was intended to do, no matter what anybody says, it was quite clear that historically this was about a right to militias and it was about a fear of the federal government becoming too powerful. And so when you have uh, the, the decision in Heller where Justice Scalia throws all of the history out the window and says, it's really about the right to self-defense, he's just making stuff up. And that's okay. That's what the Supreme Court does sometimes, although you know, usually conservatives want to criticize people for making stuff up when it comes to the Constitution, but that's fine. It's, gonna, it's maybe going to happen on, on both sides. But when you look at that, that's actually, a, in some ways, a more plausible constitutional right, is the right to self-defense. That is not about the militia right, because frankly, that just doesn't make any sense in, in modern times. You're never going to outgun the military, right? So there's there's really no way that it could be useful in that kind of old system. What was powerful about it was the sense of a common defense against um, overarching power, and that, I hope, still has some power. But, but the right of self-defense does seem compelling. It's not really in the text, but we could put it in the text. And my view of this was once you start to take that concept seriously, if you actually think people have the right to safety, physical safety, then it makes no sense to talk about arms because guns are absolutely terrible when it comes to self-defense. All the empirical evidence shows that guns are going to make it more dangerous for a person, especially an untrained person, um, to, to protect themselves. And it's probably going to result, not probably, does result in higher risks of suicide, violent deaths, injury. So there's no reason to put the two of those two things together. So what I did instead was um, think about well, what a right to self-defense really would, would need to protect would be a right to bodily autonomy, to be able to protect yourself and to make decisions about your own body. I love that. Um, oh, and is Sean Hannity a journalist? I'm still wondering about that. <laughs> so the, the politics editor of the Washington Examiner, and he was also the former editor of American Conservative, responded by writing in the weekly news magazine, The Week, that your version of the First Amendment would sharply curtail freedom of speech, and your edit of the Second Amendment is, quote, tweaked to get rid of all the icky stuff about guns and militia, close quote, and pivot to protection of abortion. How do you respond? Well, this is a great example of something that I mentioned in my book and also mentioned in the, the kind of introductory remarks to, to, these, uh, to these edits, which is that people's attachment to the Constitution is, is often, often takes the form of a kind of religious-like fervor. 
And in that vein, um, people are very irrational about their attachments. And so they get very upset about even the suggestion that things are not perfect. And so I think these are some very revealing responses. And it happened on the left and the right both, but uh, really revealing responses of people throwing down for the status quo and being shocked and appalled and infuriated that a person could even write the words that things are not perfect with the first or second amendments. Great irony, right, of, of people who are lecturing me about freedom of speech who are saying, you should be fired for what you said about the first amendment, or you should be deported. Or in some cases, the suggestion was that I should be executed. So people who are clearly very fond of free speech. So so I think it was a, it was a very telling um, illustration of how irrational people's responses are to the first and second amendments. And you know, the, to the argument that it would curtail freedom of speech, the question I think is, you know, we should ask always, what is the current regime, current status quo doing to protect freedom of speech? We have actual officials, politicians trying to ban books, trying to force social media companies to carry state propaganda. That's all happening as the First Amendment exists. And in fact, in some cases, these politicians are invoking the First Amendment as they engage in censorship. So when someone says, oh, no, what you're suggesting would mean, you know, there would be there would be some censorship. We've got lots of censorship going on right now. Um, when Trump was president, he explicitly called the media the enemy of the people, and he tried to, to impose any number of restrictions on the press. So when someone says, don't mess with the status quo, they're telling you a lot about what they appreciate about the status quo. And most of the time, what they mean is, these amendments are working out fine for people like me. And so when people get mad about the suggestion that we even think about a difference, what they're really saying is, I like the way the current system is working out for powerful, privileged people, and I don't appreciate the suggestion that it should be in any way modified so that maybe other people might have more protection um, for these rights. And when it comes to the Second Amendment question, again, there are people who are extremely attached, not just to the Second Amendment, but to their guns. It's their sense of identity. It's their sense of masculinity. It's their way of reassuring themselves that they're not superfluous in this world. So they're going to get upset about that. But as I mentioned before, the militia talk does not really translate to the current day. Uh, if you care about self-defense and self-protection, guns aren't going to help you. If you actually cared about bodily integrity, you'd care about things like the right to make your own reproductive cho choices, which is why the, the rewrite or the suggested imagination, reimagination suggests that that would be something we would, we would want to protect. I love how you took all the triggers and put them together. This is my, this is my one gift. So in your 2018 book, The Cult of the Constitution, you blame deep fundamentalist strains on both the far right and the far left for keeping the Constitution in support of the white male supremacy. Um, is your point about changing the amendments in furtherance of the tenets of your book? It's partly meant to demonstrate some of the tenets of that book. That is, Many people objected to the description of constitutional fundamentalism, really rejected the notion that people's attachment to the Constitution in any way resembles fanaticism. And I think the suggestion that we even think about how the amendments could be written differently, the kind of vitriolic response that, that it provoked demonstrates exactly what I'm getting at. And I hope that people would be alarmed by this and take a moment to reflect that you know, the Constitution is a text. It was written by human beings. It is flawed because those human beings were flawed, as all human beings are. And we should never really be in a situation where we're venerating a text um, as if it were divine. There's no such thing as a divine text, I'll say that, but it, certainly the Constitution is not a divine text. And the idea that we would need to adore or, or 
or worship a document and not think about the ways that it falls short, not think about the ways that it could be improved. I think we, you know, if we take a minute to, to try to sit with that, we'd realize that that's not a democratic impulse. That's not an impulse that is actually invested in freedom. We need to be critical. We need to be critical of power. We need to be critical of the past. We need to learn lessons. So participating in this experiment was very much meant to try to move that conversation forward and to really highlight for people that, yes, there's this, there's this religious fanatical kind of approach that many people have to the Constitution that we would recognize as being fanatical and extremist if it were about a religion, or at least maybe about a non-Christian religion. So, so, so to provoke that moment of self-reflection. My religion is the only one. My speech is the only one that should be protected. Well, I can't let you go without asking about your forthcoming book, Fearless Speech. Um, what's it about and who's it going to make mad? Well, based on this experience, I assume that it's going to make everyone angry. Uh, but Fearless Speech is meant to pick up in some ways where Cult of the Constitution left off. That is, Cult of the Constitution was about diagnosing fanaticism, about diagnosing people's confusion between principles and preferences. And fearless speech is meant to offer a different way forward, at least when it comes to the freedom of expression. And it goes back to you know, our, our, our democratic roots in a very literal sense. That is, the conceptions that the Greeks had about what it meant to have a democracy. And goes back to a term that the Greeks used for freedom of speech, uh, partisia which has been persuasively argued by um, philosophers like Michel Foucault should be translated as fearless speech. And what that means is it's not so much about being to say whatever you want, because frankly, that's what toddlers do. That's what, you know, that this is not something to be venerated is that you can say whatever you want and there's no consequences. And it's never been the position this country has actually taken on freedom of speech, despite what people may want to believe. We've always, um, we've always decided that there are some forms of speech that are not permissible and that can actually be um, regulated. Everything from perjury to child pornography to you know securities fraud. We, we have lots of views on this, but the notion of fearless speech is meant to think about the attributes of speech that really are quite important for democracy. That you be able to speak to power, right? That vulnerable people be allowed to criticize those in power, and that they be allowed to do so sincerely. That they be allowed to. Uh, to take those kinds of risks and for us to recognize that people who take those kinds of risks for themselves are not only morally, but also democratically superior to those who are engaging in reckless speech. And the distinction that I, I try to make there is that reckless speech is mostly about endangering others, about imposing risks on other people, where fearless speech is really about trying to criticize power in a way that puts the speaker at risk. And that is the kind of speech that we should be embracing and learning from the most. Oh, perfect. Well, I always feel smarter having been in your presence. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you as always for coming on and giving us your time. Thanks so much for having me. See you around. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by the upcoming Hoffman Forum virtual lecture, Non-Fungible Token, Changing the Game or Gaming the System, Thursday, January 27th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. For more information, visit miami.law.edu.
Thank you.